Good morning, everyone. Well, what a weekend and what is Sunday and Saturday in the Premier League. Tottenham and Jose Mourinho are top of the pile. Manchester United came from two goals down to win at Southampton and Wolves won for the first time at Arsenal since 1979. Hello and the finest of welcomes to the Hindsight Podcast. We're delighted to have you join us on a Monday morning and I'm more excited to talk to Solis about all the events across the last couple of hours. Solis, good to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's a real pleasure to be on. Let's, let's get into it. 19 goals across uh, the uh, various match centres from yesterday. But which one stood out for you the most? I'm sure you kept a keen eye on Leeds United and the Arsenal. But let's start off with the former, uh, rather the latter, at the Arsenal and uh, couldn't quite uh, get past Wolverhampton Wanderers. It's now in their worst start to the season since 1981. What do you make of that? Uh, well, this is a real bummer of a beginning. I was hoping we would start on Leeds. Because um, that was infinitely more interesting. But uh, yeah, the, the Arsenal, Arsenal against Leeds um, last night was pretty much a microcosm of everything that's wrong with Arsenal as a football club right now. The, the team, despite the fact they were playing against the Wolves side, that lost its best striker inside the opening 10 minutes. And by the way, um, best wishes to Raul Jimenez for that ugly, ugly clash of heads. But despite yeah. playing against the Wolves side, that lost its best striker. Arsenal seemed incapable of taking the initiative and they just kept backing off and backing off of Wolves, and they seem to lack any coherent plan, either without the ball or with the ball. So ultimately, it was a deserved victory for Wolves. Even though Arsenal came into the game a lot stronger in the second half, they really couldn't muster enough danger, and ultimately, Wolves were very comfortable. So it just um, it just goes to show that things are not right at Arsenal right now, and a lot of the fans who have kept faith with Mikel Arteta for so long will have to start smelling the coffee. Just how much uh, capital does he have in the bank to hold out such uh, results for, and for how long? Uh, you know, being a former Arsenal player, being that he um, learned his trade under Pep Guardiola at Manchester City, and being that he came in straight away and won the FA Cup, I think that has given a lot of Arsenal fans reason for optimism where he's concerned. And in a way, it's bought him a bit of time, even when results haven't exactly gone very well. Um, my personal opinion is that it's it's gotten almost to the point of denial now among the Arsenal fan base. I think there need there needs to be a an understanding of precisely what it is Ateta's job is supposed to be with this team, and from there we can begin to evaluate whether he's doing it well or not. So far, the evidence suggests he is not. The team does not look like one which is coached, even beyond the wider issue of the quality of the squad. So he, he does have a lot of um, goodwill still among the Arsenal fan base, with, but a lot of that is more wishful thinking than anything. People want him to succeed and so they expect him to, whereas the evidence does not readily support that when you look at it dispassionately. Mm, interesting. I'd like to take your thoughts on uh, the, uh, I mean, I know you're not a doctor, but um, what are your general thoughts on David Lewis uh, staying on the pitch after that nasty clash of heads with Raul Jimenez, obviously uh, we could see uh, some blood on his uh, band-aid. Uh, it's, it's, it's raised so much talking points across uh, the uh, various media spaces, and it all looks as if though, you know, he should have been taken off. Yeah, like you said, we're, we're not we're not medical personnel, so perhaps we're not the experts to speak to something like this. But I feel like um, for all the money and all the um, exposure that football has has gotten all around the world. There's still a very archaic attitude when it comes to 
head injuries to professional footballers. I, I found it very, I found it borderline irresponsible that David, um, David Luiz stayed on after that nasty clash of heads. I mean, Raul Jimenez had to go off straight to hospital. And I suppose we can say, okay, it's a bit of, it's a credit to David Luiz's toughness that he was able to regain his, his senses um, after that. But he really should have been taken off the pitch for his own good. I, I really don't see what the point was in keeping him on the pitch for the rest of the first half and then taking him off at halftime. That just, um, it seemed tokenist and sort of too late really to do anything. Um, the effect of concussions on, on footballers is something that is not talked about enough. Um, we remember the nasty incident from the 2014 World Cup final where Christoph Kremer injured himself um, yeah. with a nasty blow to the head and didn't know where he was. And despite and this was despite the fact that he was still moving around the pitch and was still, you know, playing. So um, I think for their own good sometimes, the club should be able to make um, the right calls for the good of the players, I mean to say. Should be able to make the think- right calls even when they are not convenient. Do you think that uh, in case of uh, very nasty concussions like this, the rules should accommodate, you know, if you've made, already made, you know, three changes, for example, because I'm thinking from a manager's point of view, obviously, they'll be thinking, you know, if I take him off now and that tactically doesn't allow me to have wiggle room in case something happens to the game, do you think the rules should be uh, accommodating? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think I think football could do with better rules regarding that. But in a way, I think that that discussion in itself is a red herring. I mean, we're talking about um, a game of football, really, and we're weighing that up against the player's life and well-being going forward. I think even without rules mandating that, I believe managers should be able to get the right perspective on what is going on. I mean, we all love football. And we all follow football all around the world. And it's something that is a source of joy and also a source of livelihood for a lot of people. But at the same time, in the, in the wider scheme, it's nowhere near as important as a player's life yeah. and his future, his health long term. So I believe with or without substitutions, it's, the onus is on the managers to um, get out of that mindset of selfishness, you know, wanting the player to soldier on. And then think about it and say, okay, yes, I might lose the tactical sub later in the game, but ultimately this player is going to thank me for this down the line in his career. He is going to be healthy. You know, that mm. that that for me is the more important thing. It's the cultural selfishness that needs to die. Brilliant. Well, Arsenal said protocols were followed regarding the decision to allow David Lewis to play on after his clash of heads with Raul Jimenez. However, the Brazilian was pictured with blood seeping from his bandage and did not appear, of course, for the second half and was replaced by Rob Holding. Well, footballers who sustained a suspected concussion either during training or in a game should immediately be removed from the pitch and are not allowed to return until appropriate treatment has been administered. That's according to the FA's guidelines were uh, wishing Raul Jimenez all uh, the best and, of course, wishing him a very speedy recovery from uh, that nasty clash of heads uh, yesterday in the 2-1 defeat uh, to um, the 2-1 win of by the Arsenal. Right then, let's uh, move away from uh, the Arsenal, talk about another game which uh, uh, raised lots of you know, attention yesterday as Sunday to be speaking of, speaking of which, and it's uh, the game between Manchester United and Southampton. I mean, it's United's away record continues to improve. Uh, eight wins uh, on the bounds away from home and Edison Cavani getting two goals for Ligona Solskjaer. It begs the question, why doesn't he start more often? That is an important question and it's one that I've had as well. I mean, we all know Cavani is, you know, the other side of 30 and once the player gets to that age, there is a perception of them that they are finished and they don't have a lot to offer. But 
in terms of quality, the moment he walked into the Manchester United dressing room, he immediately became the best center forward that the club has. And you want to give Sosha the benefit of the doubt being that he trains these players and say, okay, maybe he was, you know, he's been trying to integrate the players slowly and he wants him to get used to certain things or certain way the club plays, the way the team plays and all of that. But I think this is a decision that was long overdue. And Cavani is just, um, for all that, you know, the likes of Rashford and Green would have the sort of pace that um, social needs seems to prize up front. The sheer quality that Cavani has, it's, it's, it just takes the conversation away from all of that. And ultimately, you need a striker that will put the ball in the back of the net. And there is nobody at Manchester United that does that better than Emerson Cavani. The moment he came onto the pitch, the game completely changed. United looked sharp up front against a team that, you know, in the, in the first half had almost blown them away. So... Um, he's definitely sent a message to the manager regarding his first team prospects going forward. Certainly, Edison Cavani, a man of the match yesterday against uh, Southampton. Three goals to two, United won that game. Well, let's move on from there and talk about uh, a game in which you are pretty much interested. It's about time we uh, brought Leeds United into the conversation. But before we do that, what has gone wrong with Everton? Uh, You know, 0-1 loss at home. They looked very lethargic and Without any creative spark, what's going wrong with Carlo Ancelotti's team then? Uh, to be honest, I'm, I've, I've been of the opinion from the start of the season that there was a lot, um, they were getting a lot of plaudits really, which they, I don't want to say they didn't deserve because they were winning games, but it didn't seem to tally with what I was seeing on the pitch. Um, for example, one of the things that God said about Everton a lot was how balanced um, their selection was, but really I didn't see it that way. I thought, I thought especially their midfield, even though it was more solid or it has been more solid this season, lacks a bit of variety in terms of the profiles available. So it, it always seemed to me that their initial run of results was not going to be sustainable, and that's something we've seen borne out now. Um, here we saw Ancelotti for the second week in a row go for a new system, and it seemed obvious that um, against the lead side who if nothing else, bring 100% intensity every game. This, um, this shape that Everton are trying to um, bed in, not midway through the season, but with a significant part of the season gone, is still a work in progress. I mean, they had Alexi Wobi and Tom Davies as wing-backs. Now, whatever you say about the um, talents of both players, neither of them is a wing-back in, mm. in any sense of the word. So um, it, it, was, it was always going to be a difficult ask for them to hold off elite side who, you know, go at it from the very, very first blast of the whistle and fancy themselves against pretty much any opposition. At least United uh, finally uh, uh, picking up a, a, a nice win. It looks as if though they've uh, be- began to, you know, shut out teams uh, at the back and, you know, they're not scoring a lot of goals even though they're creating lots of chances. But Marcel Bielsa would have taken that, especially after a tough uh, period. Yeah, it was very important to get back to winning ways for Leeds. Their previous game against Arsenal, they really should have won that. They had um, the better opportunities and they pinned Arsenal back and hit the bar three times, improbably without, without scoring any goals. This time around, they hit the bar once, but crucially, they did get the goal they needed um, for the three points. I, I think what we are seeing from Leeds is um, the same sort of defensive backbone that underpins their promotion campaign from the championship. I know they, they, they caught the eye in the early weeks for you know a lot of goals in their games, but really that 
Leeds were never really that way in the championship. It was always about keeping things solid at the back, showing showing their metal in defense and um, or dominating teams in attack. And while they don't necessarily um, put away all their chances when they come, but ultimately you can see that in these games, with their willingness to go toe-to-toe with whoever they are playing, these are good value to watch and they are good value for their wins when they get them. Fantastic. Uh, looking forward to uh, a couple more interesting performances from uh, Leeds United. Uh, let's move on from uh, that result and uh, speak about uh, the tabletopers of the Premier League. And of course, you've got to mention a fantastic game that went down to yesterday between Tottenham Hotspur and uh, Chelsea. Well, you've got to look at how both teams approach the game and say, in the end, maybe a point is fair enough. But when you think about the, the week Liverpool have had, then it probably go into the game the best result for both teams, don't you think? Yeah, I don't think either team will complain about the result ultimately at the end of the day. I, I think I think Chelsea would have liked to win and they did try to force the issue. But ultimately, that it's always a danger when you're playing a Jose Mourinho side in that Mourinho actively wants you to overcommit resources in attack so he can punish you. And um, good thing for Chelsea, Lampard is probably wise to that, having played for Mourinho, of course, for many years. So um, neither side, Chelsea didn't really do enough to force the issue. And Tottenham, didn't, as a result, didn't have the space to really punish them. So it was, it, was, it was a stalemate, both in terms of the results and in terms of the actual football on the pitch. I think of the two managers, definitely Mourinho um, will have been happier with the draw and you know, being able to return to the top of the Premier League, even if only on goal difference. Uh, quite interesting. Tottenham have now won uh, five consecutive matches in all competitions for the first time uh, since uh, November uh, 2018. Actually, six matches now. And now, last time that happened was uh, under Mauricio Pochettino. So, uh, an interesting weekend for Tottenham and uh, Chelsea. Right then, let's get away from that now and speak about Liverpool, who couldn't quite get all three points against Brighton and Hove Albion. What kind of season uh, at Liverpool? Are going to have. I mean, clearly, still very much in the in the in the picture, and you just sense that maybe the injuries and the lack of you know extra firepower, you know, caught up with the team in the end. Yeah, but I think it's it's important to give a lot of credit to Brighton and Hove Albion. I mean, throughout the season, they've showed a willingness to match up against their opponents, and they play a very good brand of football. The trouble for them has been converting that that other attractive play into actual goals. So um, against Liverpool on Saturday, they were good value for their draw. They gave as well as they got. I think what we are seeing from we touched on the last time, just so many injuries and so many absences that ultimately we are your club is in a state of mind where he has to actively manage individual players in terms of their workload and what they can do on the on the pitch. And the alternative to a lot of these players are young players, especially in defense. We we saw Nathaniel Phillips at the back in defense, who, you know, this is pretty much his first season playing senior mm. football yeah. um, on a consistent basis. So it's when you're playing with players that are that young, who are that inexperienced and who are not perfectly in sync with the rhythm of the team, especially for a team like Liverpool you're bound to get some variability in terms of outputs and in terms of results. Um, so, yeah, Liverpool, they will have hiccups like this through the season, but I don't think they will be the only ones. So I think this is going to be a season that is going to be defined by who can 
um, weather the storm and who will make the fewest missteps. What do you make of the fact that they've dropped uh, more points uh, from winning positions this season, um, six points actually, than they did uh, the whole of last season? Uh, um, is that the drop in quality we're, we're witnessing, or would you put that down to? What would you put that down to? Well, it, it's pretty, it pretty much comes down to the same thing. I mean, yes, the, the quality is down because players are not available, and not only are certain players not available due to injury, but those who are available because of injuries have to play more minutes than they usually would have. And that, that translates into a drop in both mental focus and physical freshness. So you, you find a situation where late in games, players are kind of out on their feet and they are more susceptible to soccer punches like this. So that, that's really all it's about. It's, I, it sort of takes away something very important from Liverpool because what Liverpool were able to do very well last season on route to winning the title was to score early and then manage the rest of the game by just keeping yeah. the ball. But now that they don't have that same level of um, physical sharpness, it, it might be a dangerous strategy. So perhaps we'll see Liverpool trying more early on in games to really blow out the opposition rather than score one or two and sit down on that you might see them trying to go three or four, maybe like in sharp bursts early on in games in order to get through the period of time and stay on. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll keep a keen eye on Liverpool. Uh, let's uh, move on to Manchester City, who, of course, uh, put five past uh, Burnley. It's an interesting result because City haven't been scoring uh, lots of goals, but is that the kind of uh, performance that maybe... Uh, you know, shocks them back into action. You speak about Riyad Mahrez, who, um, you know, becomes, I think, the sixth African player to uh, reach a milestone of uh, 100 goal involvement in the Premier League. He's just uh, only behind Adebayo, Yakubu, Drogba, Mo Salah and Saidio Mane. He's now been involved in 100 goals with 41 assists and 59 goals. Just how important uh, could he be in terms of taking on the uh, goal-scoring burden from, from Aguero and clearly Jesus, who hasn't been scoring enough? Yeah, I think definitely. If if it's in if it's in terms of quality, there's absolutely no doubt that Real Mares can power Manchester City through um, what is a very difficult and challenging season. The the trouble here is, and, and of course, as impressive as the result against Burnley was, it it what wasn't exactly instructive. It's Burnley. Man, Man City do this to them relatively um, frequently every season. So yeah, um, but the trouble is, he, Mares has in Guardiola a manager who doesn't so much trust in the players as he trusts in the system. And I think mm. from time to time, against certain kinds of opposition, we'll see, you know, this Mares, this Mares who is a berserker, can take anybody apart. But ultimately, Guardiola seems to revert to what he knows best, which is, you know, managing his players to play to a particular style and to the system that he wants. And I think for certain players, that's works quite well but then for others like Mares who are soloists who like to improvise that can be very sapping in terms of their not only their emotional involvement in games but also their creative energy as well so um, can Mares do it yes will Guardiola trust him to do it the evidence doesn't suggest that he does so mm. 
Well, uh, a great weekend in the Premier League and of course uh, Chelsea and Tottenham are the two standout uh, teams because they uh, both uh, put, got, got, got results that put them in a great position uh, going into the next round of games. Chelsea and Tottenham are on the longest current unbeaten runs in the Premier League with Spurs, uh, one of three sides with a 100% away record in the competition uh, so far uh, this season. Well, let's uh, get away as we uh, we've got what, five to six minutes to wrap up on the podcast and head on to Spain because Atletico Madrid uh, had a, a nice uh, weekend uh, out there in uh, Valencia at the, at the Mestalla. It's a one-year result, uh, an upgrade on what you saw at the midweek in the Champions League, but uh, Lionel Messi uh, scoring a goal and, of course, dedicating it to the uh, recently passed away Diego Maradona. Is that the kind of result that Barcelona needs to put up more often for nil against Osasuna? Eh, well, yeah, we've seen, we've seen Barcelona struggle in these kinds of games. Um, not just this season, but going back to last season. And these were games that in their pump, they would more routinely win. So in that in that way, this was a welcome return to form for them. Um, it was also important because Anton Griezmann scored a, very, a really tremendous goal. And that would be good for his confidence because he's looked, he's looked a player who is seriously lacking confidence in Barcelona. So this, this would be good for him ultimately. Um, I, I think it's one, one would be... You know, we'll be tempted to say Barcelona are back, but let's let's not get the champagne out just yet. I mean, there are still a lot of issues, and even worse, they lost Clement Langley during the game, and now they are absolutely down to bare bones in defense. No Clement Langley, no Samuel Titi, no Gerard Piquet, and no Ronald yeah. uh, Roland Araujo at the back. So I'm not sure how they go from this, but it was a good confidence boost for a number of players in that sense. Uh, interesting. Right then, uh, let's uh, move away. Uh, I mean, just got to mention the tabletop as a Real Sociedad who uh, played out a one ultra against Villarreal. It's been uh, quite the um, return to form and you know life for United Emery is totally uh, look rejuvenated against uh, in, in Villarreal colors. But Real Sociedad dropping their first points in in five games and I've got to say that they've had a very impressive start to the season. No? Yes, really. Um, we saw from last season some of what Simanola Guasil wants to do as um, Sociedad manager, his style of football, which is very pleasing on the eye. This season, he's added some quality in David Silva, who seems tailor made for the way they want to play, and they've regularly been um, taking teams apart in La Liga. So I'd say their position is very well um, earned. Villarreal, in the offseason, did a lot of good recruitment, and Una Emery has, you know, taken them to a very admirable position on the table early on in the season. Of course, there will be tougher challenges for both sides, so this might not necessarily be instructive. And there's also, it's also worth noting that Atletico Madrid have two games in hand still, and if they win those, they will be top of the table and bump these sides down. But in the mean, it's very, very heartwarming to see two teams who are always kind of in the Europa League places thereabouts in the league pushing so high and challenging expectations in La Liga. A great season as far as uh, the opening uh, couple of uh, matches go so far. We've got uh, that December fixtures that uh, looks uh, really uh, packed for uh, lots of uh, the teams. And of course, uh, uh, breaking news uh, from Sky is reporting that Raul Jimenez is comfortable after a fractured skull uh, operation. So uh, thoughts are currently uh, with uh, Raul Jimenez. But of course, if that's not um, uh, bad enough news, uh, we got some more bad news uh, yesterday as former Senegal, Fulham and Port 
Hawks must uh, midfielder Papa Boba Diop uh, died, has died at the age of 42. Uh, Diop, of course, made 129 appearances in the Premier League and also had spells in England with West Ham and Birmingham City. While well, Diop played for Senegal at the 2002 World Cup, scoring the winner in that famous opening uh, game of the tournament uh, for his country as they beat France. Of course, Diop who was an interesting player. All the ex-players who've talked about him said he was a very towering figure and an open, uh, big-hearted gentleman. And, of course, uh, he will be missed across the continent and across the world. Uh, so, Liz, uh, what are your favorite uh, memories of Papa Boba Diop? Well, definitely being a part of that Senegal side in 2002 World Cup was really memorable. Senegal in that tournament were a real breath of fresh air. Typically, we, you get African sides go to the World Cup and try to batten down the hatches and stuff. But Senegal in that, in that year took the game to whoever they were playing. I, I still remember very fondly. Um, interestingly, not even one of the games they won. Their third group game against Uruguay, which ended 3-3, which genuinely was probably the most entertaining game in that tournament. Um, racing into a three-goal lead in the first half with Bubadiop scoring twice before Senegal came, led by Diego, and before Uruguay, rather, led by Diego Fola and came back into the game in the second period. So um, in that really is the portrait of Bubadiop. Uh, like you said, a towering presence in midfield, great dynamism, great engine, could get into the box and regularly surprise teams. So in that way, he was a very good representative for what Senegal would do that. They were very physical, they were very fast, and they stunned a lot of teams at that World Cup. So yeah, may he rest in peace. Great player. Well, uh, fantastic. Uh, one of the favourite memories I have of Bubadio, but certainly as a Manchester United fan, has to be uh, that interesting goal he scored at the Cravens Cottage back, I think it was the uh, 05 06 season, or I think, yeah, there about. Uh, but yeah, uh, that was pretty much uh, a player in his prime. So may so rest in peace. Papa Bubadio has died age 42. Right then, uh, be a part of the Hindsight Podcast uh, followership on social media. Uh, be a part of it on Google and Spotify podcasts. Uh, simply search for The Hindsight Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, it's simply The Hindsight Pod. Felix, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, on a Monday uh, quickfire uh, podcast. And uh, what are you looking forward to for the rest of the week? Uh, well, you know, li- really looking forward to the, to the Champions League matches that are to come. Obviously, a number of teams could wrap up qualification. Um, with matches this midweek, so we'll see how that goes. Um, Liverpool dropped points last time out at home against Atalanta, so they need they need one more result to get through. And yeah, it's it's a real the real intrigue in their group for me is who goes in second place between Atalanta and Ajax, and that's really something that's interesting to observe. So yeah, great stuff. Uh, so this, uh, we'll have to let you go now. Hopefully you join us uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, certainly we could be an eye on everything happening. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure. Real pleasure. Let's do this. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right then, uh, you've just uh, listened to the Hindsight Podcast. So please do well to follow us on all podcast platforms, Google and Spotify. And of course, on Twitter and Instagram at the Hindsight Podcast. My name is Yubi. Do it of it. We'll see you soon.